You know, Voltaire said famously, and our founders knew it, I may disagree with everything you say, but I will defend with my life your right to say it. President Trump says, because I disagree with everything you say, I will overturn your popular election and incite insurrection against the government. And we might take a moment to consider another Voltaire insight, which a high school teacher of mine told me when a student asked, when was the beginning of the Enlightenment? And she said, I think it was when Voltaire said, anyone who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. It isn't often that Voltaire, the 18th century French philosopher, gets quoted in the halls of Congress, at least not these days. But when Congressman Jamie Raskin did so during Thursday's impeachment trial, he did so with devastating effect. Anyone who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. What better way to describe Donald Trump's conduct during the events of January 6th? As Raskin and his fellow House managers laid out in their presentation, Trump sold his followers on an absurdity that the election was stolen and then riled them up to commit the atrocities of the ransacking of the U.S. Capitol. Raskin's closing remarks in particular were powerful and at times inspirational, invoking the text and spirit of the Constitution, the words of Abraham Lincoln, and the writings of Thomas Paine, all in a plea that the Senate convict Trump and permanently disqualify him from ever holding federal office again. Did Raskin and his colleagues make their case? As Trump's lawyers prepared to make their own very different case, we'll discuss with constitutional law professor Kim Whaley and Yahoo News correspondent John Ward on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And we are joined by Kim Whaley and John Ward. Kim and John, welcome back to Skullduggery. Great to be here. So, Kim, you're the constitutional law professor. Um, give us your take on how the House has presented its case and whether they have met its burden. Well, there are, I think, pros and there are cons. The, when you say burden, this is not a criminal trial. So it's not beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a very high burden. It's whatever the senators think needs to happen. Um, but I think you could make a case they met it even beyond a reasonable doubt. Why? Uh, if this were in court, I think the lawyers would have teased out the two primary elements of this crime. One is uh, the actual incitement. We saw that for two straight days in heartbreaking detail. And the first was intent, that Donald Trump intended by his rhetoric and by his actions that the Capitol be stormed and there be that level of incitement. That's trickier, particularly given that they didn't call witnesses. But the fact that they laid out in real time with a side-by-side -side kind of split screen, this is what's happening, this is what Trump is either saying, tweeting, or not doing in the face of reports that his daughter, his son-in-law, Republicans, all pleading for him to pull the lever of power that he had to save lives. Um, I think they, they, they established 
that question of intent by virtue of that story. So the facts are there. Um, whether you know we're in a moment where the 17 or some subsection of those Republican senators could actually be shifted, I, I would have liked to see, frankly, witnesses potentially to do that because in a criminal trial, it's the victim's families that tends to change minds or maybe calling Mike Pence or calling people that coordinated uh, for the Trump campaign with what ultimately were the rioters. Or the people who interacted with Trump that afternoon while the riot was going on, because the House managers rested a lot on the fact that Trump didn't do anything and cited press reports that he was delighted or dismissing it, watching it on TV. You know, if right. if true, incredibly damning and would clinch the case but they are relying on press reports. They don't have the witnesses or the documents that could show that. Right. Imagine if Mike Pence were called yes. to talk not only about what happened that day, but what happened when he went to talk to Donald Trump afterwards when there was pressure on him to, to trigger the 25th Amendment uh, and to step into his shoes for those last few days in office. I mean, you know, if this were done thoroughly, and I know you and I share the opinion that it needs to be done by a commission or a grand jury or both uh, to get to the bottoms of the of the bottom of things. Uh, we wouldn't have just seen, you know, a series of videos with very compelling argument. But on that, it was extraordinarily well done. It was beautifully orchestrated. And if you have a beating heart in your body, uh, there's no way you couldn't have compassion and pain around it. And the big issue is, and Jamie Raskin said this. This will happen again in America. It's not so much Donald Trump one-off. It's if there are no consequences for this, there's no disincentive. And that's the that's the scary piece. I just don't know if it got out into the public consciousness. John, you, you listened to all of the trial and you were in the Senate chamber for most of it. Tell us what you observed uh, over the course of the last three days in terms of the House managers' overall strategy. Uh, their tactics, what they were trying to do to persuade the uh, Republican jurors and, and whether you think they were effective, which isn't to say that you necessarily think they're going to get the 17 votes they need for conviction, but whether they may get some more Republicans than initially we, uh, we had thought that they would get. Well, I think Kim's point about having someone like Mike Pence testify is really interesting and relevant because it cuts against the point I'm going to make here a little bit, which is that Democrats, the House managers have not presented their cases if they're accepting the inevitability of Republicans voting against conviction. Because just like the last impeachment, a lot of Republicans have said or signaled that their minds are made up, they're not going to listen, they feel politically constrained to vote against conviction. And last impeachment, the Democrats sort of just said, okay, then we'll just talk to, you know, a TV audience, essentially. That was kind of the way it came across. And there's many different reasons for this. It's not just what I'm talking about. But this time, the Democratic managers are, I think, going out of their way to show a lot of deference and attempt to persuade the Republican senators. You know, there's a lot of things they're doing to communicate that. You know, Raskin ended his his remarks today by talking about how common sense is the sense that we all have in common as a community. I think, Dan, you might've mentioned the word community. They're emphasizing a common identity of all of the senators, not as Republicans and Democrats, but as members of 
uh, a bastion of democracy and lawmaking that's under a threat and assault from mob rule and demagoguery. And, uh, you know, they've gone out of their way to emphasize the way in which Pence himself uh, was thrown under the bus by Trump once he no longer bowed his knee to the cult of personality. They also did this with uh, Secretary of State in Georgia, Raffensperger, talking about how Trump on Thanksgiving Day called him an enemy of the people. So they're trying to make the point to Republicans that this is something that will come for you, has already come for you, you know, on January 6th. I think Kim's point is important because if they were really going to go all out to try to make this happen, to try to make this case, they would call Pence. I mean, when you look at the way that they've made him a centerpiece of the their arguments, to have him in the chamber, and you have to imagine he actually might come and testify, and I, I suppose they could force him to. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem is they haven't deposed him, so you don't know what he'd say. Uh, I mean, sure. certainly based on all the reporting about what happened, you'd think he'd be furious and that Trump never called him uh, even after it was reported that his life was in danger and these people, these rioters, his mob, Trump's mob, were shouting, hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence, while he was in the Capitol, you would think that would give him the motivation to tell the truth. This is a line of reporting we need to actually dig into, not to yeah. give other reporters ideas, but like we should be asking the House managers whether they've whether they talked to Pence's people before this to try to get a sense of whether he would come. Is it possible, do you think, that uh, the House managers decided they didn't want to call a witness like Mike Pence because they don't want a uh, they don't want a food fight over witnesses? They don't want to risk in any way that this descend into a partisan battle. Um, they seem to really bend over backwards to to appear to be not partisan. Now, that doesn't wouldn't explain why they wouldn't call, say, Eugene Goodman of the Capitol Police or, as Kim suggested, some of the other victims uh, of, of these crimes. But I that just doesn't wonder- doesn't necessarily help them prove their case. That's kind of like a right. victim impact statement <laughs> that takes place well, during it moves, sentencing. It moves jurors. That's it what moves Kim was voters. saying. Yeah, yeah. It moves voters, which could move jurors. And I should just say they also dangled some of this, right? Stacey Plaskett kind of made the point that the Trump campaign or the, the White House was in, potentially involved in moving the date of the protest to January 6th. So, so I kind of want to know a little bit more about that, right? Um, what, How much coordination was there in advance? There are too many questions that are, are unanswered. I mean, call Larry Hogan. Call Larry Hogan to say, what was it like to sit there for 90 minutes trying to get through the Defense Department to be able to send National Guard troops um, in response. I think it was either Nan you know, Nancy Pelosi or one of the top people called him and said, please help us. Or, or Chris Miller, who was the acting Secretary of Defense at the time, about the calling it up the National Guard. I mean, did he consult right. with the White House? Did he talk to Pence? Did he talk to the president? We don't know the answer to that. Well, I think we know he talked to Pence. Well, we, it's been reported, but we haven't we haven't heard the testimony of what the conversation was like. But another one I'd like to hear from is Dan Scavino, Trump's social media guy in the White House. You remember yesterday there were assertions that Scavino was monitoring all the dark web traffic 
of the protesters, the insurrectionists who were coming on January 6th, in which they were openly talking about, you know, doing violence and storming the Capitol. The suggestion was Scavino would have known that. Did he? What was, and presumably, you know, his laptop and his cell phone could answer those questions because did the White House know what these insurrectionists were up to? And whether there was specific coordination. I mean, Sheldon Whitehouse, a senator from Rhode Island, said on air today that his concern is that there were people within the Republican caucus that were part of this coordination. I mean, of course, we have no evidence of that in the trial, um, but there are too many threads that need to be pulled. And if that's what's potentially biasing jurors against paying attention to the actual evidence, um, there's no way this trial would actually get to the bottom of things. But as John indicates, if the goal was really to carry the ball as far across the goal as possible, right? Just really nail it. We can't do it with just what we saw as much as compelling as it was, and it really was. It was more compelling than I had anticipated. Of course, what we didn't see before were the body cams on the uh, law enforcement officers. I think the fact they were left twisting in the wind, the commander-in-chief completely abandoning them, and the heroism, unbelievable. Uh, And also, of course, the the closed-circuit TV of Mitt Romney and others doing a 180 when their security details were like, listen, there's an armed mob. We have to turn around. I mean, this... You know, I think prosecutors would say, listen, I can't dream of a case with this facts that are this good. But the standard right now is is so high. It has to be my political future is better off doing what Raskin's asking me to do, which is to uphold my oath to the Constitution the same way these officers did on January 6th and, and putting them their lives on the line. John, you were in the chamber. You were watching it. How many Republican senators were glued to the uh, presentations? How many were actually there? What did you see? You know, Tuesday was better attended, I think, than today. I heard reports that a dozen or so Republicans were out for long periods today. But, you you know, on Tuesday and yesterday, the only senator I can say unequivocally who was not paying any attention for the periods I was in there was Rick Scott of Florida. He was, I, I had a good view of, of him yesterday. I was in a different seat on Tuesday. Who, by the way, who called the, the Senate trial a waste of time, right? Yeah. And he was kind of hunched over looking at it, reading material in a three-ring binder yesterday. You know, I was kind of watching to see who was maybe reading and then looking up when they played video or other things. And he was the only one who never even looked up when there was video. He was clearly completely checked out. There were others who were kind of in and out. The other interesting detail was that Josh Hawley was up in the spectator gallery. Um, He's the only senator to do this. Apparently it's allowed under COVID protocols. I I think they've all gotten vaccinated. So I'm not really sure what the health concern is for him. He's, you know, he's in his forties. It's fairly bizarre that he's up there in the spectator gallery, but you know, there was some controversy over him putting his feet up and it actually struck me this afternoon I think most people who hear that think he's putting his feet up in the Senate chamber, like he's lying down and putting his feet up like three feet on a desk. But it's more like sitting in a stadium in the upper bowl and you put your feet on top of the chair in front of you. It's still not a great look, but it's not quite the same thing. I would also say when they played the videos both days, really, the the temperature in the chamber and even in the gallery outside the chamber, you know, went noticeably up. Matter of fact, yesterday when they began to play the videos, there was a plainclothes Capitol Police officer 
sitting in the press gallery, sort of, you know, in the position where they always have an officer. And I just noticed he was just, he just had his head down. Don't know if his eyes were closed, but he just had his head down, looking down. And I saw Igor Bobic, who I hope he doesn't mind me saying this. He's tweeted about it a little bit. Huffington Post reporter. Yeah, he took the video of Eugene Goodman backing up those stairs. And in fact, the last time I was in the Capitol before this trial, I was in a little room in the gallery working alongside Igor. But when they were playing the videos yesterday, he was like standing up in the gallery and looked at times like he might be about to walk out of the gallery. Clearly, a lot of people were re-experiencing trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Kim, I wanted to ask Kim uh, just on some of the legal points here. I mean, there are elements of of the case of proving crimes and you know misdemeanors um that you know they needed to get get over the those hurdles um one of them that i was interested in was this idea that the violence was foreseeable and i think they spent a lot of time trying to prove that that gets to the scavino point i was making before right it gets to the scavino point but there are also other things that were playing out publicly i mean for example uh, they pointed out a number of times, seemingly in response to uh, a Trump tweet, that a, a mob surrounded the home of the Secretary of State in Michigan. And um, there's, of course, the famous scene of the Trump supporters trying to drive the Biden bus, campaign bus, um, off the road in, in Texas. But in terms of just making those tactical uh, legal points. Uh, do, do you think they scored a lot of points? What do you think they did best? Well, I think they had to do that foreseeability part because what we are going to see in, in terms of the defense is that Donald Trump said some things, he used fighting words, but this is what he does. He's done this for years. We all know he does this. Uh, he sprinkled them with happy words like be peaceful. Uh, so there's plausible deniability. We all know this is what Donald Trump does. B- big deal. Politicians say stuff. And so technically, legally, it goes to intent. But I think the whole foreseeability story, and it was pretty compelling to hear about how, I mean, basically they portrayed what happened to Gretchen Whitmer as, as a trial run and noted they were the same people. And that, and that Donald Trump hammered Gretchen Whitmer after she was, you know, the the plot to kidnap and potentially murder her was uncovered, hammered her in his rallies and online. um, And that was around COVID. So I've been thinking about the charging decision, right? They, they didn't have to charge incitement of insurrection. And because of that, I don't think they, what what would they have charged if not incitement? They could have charged something something relating to dereliction of duty in terms of as commander in chief, right? Yeah. Because he did abandon his take care obligation, not only to call in reinforcements on the sixth, but all of the lies leading up to the sixth. Um, the sixty plus lawsuits, 90 judges who said there's no evidence of fraud and it's his job to enforce the laws, um, including the election laws. And certainly what happened with Raffensperger, which is now being investigated, was an abdication of his, his take care clause. So they had to make a decision. Listen, we if we if we water down the charge, we're going to get into a fight about if it's impeachable, if it's a high crime and misdemeanor. We're not hearing that right now. We're not hearing that argument being made. Everyone sort of agrees it's a high crime and misdemeanor. But the problem with that is that then we all get into crime land. We're all thinking about crimes. And the way I like to frame this is it's really a personnel decision, right? We all have jobs. If you violate the terms of your job description, 
you can get fired and there can be terms of your your termination. Um, maybe you can't be in that bit, that line of work again, or or you can't work with certain children of a certain age, something like that. That's what it is. And certainly all of us don't get a full-blown criminal trial investigation before we're fired from our jobs. Um, but by by using incitement of insurrection, they've established a higher hurdle. And that's where I do think, Dan, they did an excellent job, if people watched it, of walking through how he had to have known. If he didn't know before, he was reckless. And he certainly knew when, when we all knew what was happening in real time. And it wasn't just politicians who were on the line. It wasn't just counting the electoral votes. It was these Blue Lives Matter police officers that he ran on in 2020. Law and order, I protect the blue lives and the thousands of staffers and other innocent people. But that's the part, you know, I would like to know more about the injuries, frankly. They talked about being pummeled. They talked about eyes gouged out. You know, I agree with Mike. That is that is pulls on heartstrings, but I think that's what it takes in politics potentially to get people to have the courage to do what's right in this moment. You know, Kim, as you and I talked a few days ago, I was uh, ambivalent about uh, the whole trial, largely because of the low likelihood of securing a conviction and the need I continue to feel for a 9-11 style commission to answer all these questions that we're talking about. But that said, you know, I watched it the first two days and thought, this is a really powerful case. And it's even stronger than I had thought when you see it all put together. And then I turned on Fox last night to check in on see what Hannity and company are saying. And it's like a completely different world. I mean, we know that, but to see it as starkly as I did last night, where the whole thing's a sham, it's a waste of time, nobody's paying any attention on to it. Lindsey Graham comes on and says, oh, you know, there, there's more senators ready to vote for acquittal now than there was before. This thing is like just making no impact whatsoever. And I was like, you know, wow. Um, we're obviously living in two different Americas and watching two different TV screens. So that said, John, you've been following the Republicans. We've got six who already have voted that at least the trial is constitutional. They need 11 more. I look at, you know, are there other Republicans who could go there? I think McConnell maybe Thune, maybe Portman. Uh, give us your assessment of where they are and who might vote for conviction. Man, I wish I had known you were going to ask me this. Um, first of all- <laughs> Isn't I that would, the obvious question? That's why we I had you, you on. I Everything think else facetious. just dressing. <laughs> okay. No, I'm not being facetious because I did make a list like at some point, and I don't have it in front of me now. But um, before I answer that, I mean, isn't there a talk of them doing a 9-11 style commission on this? Well, I, yeah, there has been talk of it, but nobody has introduced okay. legislation which you'd need to advance it. And then the question is, what's going to be the appetite after, you know, this emotionally wrenching trial? But but the key thing with a 9-11 style commission, if Congress were to create it, is that the commission would have subpoena power. Absolutely. And it would be bipartisan. And that would be the way to get bipartisan buy-in from Republicans on, you know, just how horrific the whole thing was. And it would presumably include the absurd claims about stop the steal and, you know, of course, they also have no 
they, they can enforce no penalties. So there's no sanction. No, but uh, a public airing of the facts, you know, is might important. be more devastating than anything. Uh, and just to be clear, the, the Senate has subpoena power as well. They would just have to vote on it. So they, they could be subpoenaing Yeah, witness. but you want the dressing of a blue ribbon commission. Oh, I don't disagree with you. Seriously. I don't disagree with just you. Just like 9-11. Okay, so, so John, we've got your kind of wrap up of the last three days about to go up on Yahoo News. And you've got some... You, you talked to some Republican staffers. You've been taking their pulse. You, you've got some reporting on how this trial has uh, gone down from the perspective of Republican senators. And the question was, which Republicans might conceivably vote to convict? Yeah, and I wasn't going to dodge it, just so you know, Mr. Mm-hmm. Isikoff. And we wouldn't let you do that. Yeah, no, I mean, th- one of the Senate GOP aides that I talked to today basically said, you know, they were comparing they were comparing Raskin to Schiff and basically saying he's not talking down to Republicans like Schiff did. Um, you know, he's not talking to MSNBC. He's talking to the chamber. You know, they also said this is a much more compelling case just on the on the substance than the Ukraine, you know, extortion phone call from from a year ago. So I think, you know, you have the five senators, Republicans who voted um uh, or six, I guess, voted for the constitutionality, but five voted for it the first time. So those five, I think most people think are uh, pretty much going to vote to impeach. That's Markowski, Collins, Toomey, Romney, and um, Sass. Sass. So, and then you have Cassidy. He's a wild card at this point. Yeah. And then I think you have, I think you're right. McConnell and Thune, because they, they're party leaders. McConnell just got reelected. He's 78. I think he has made it pretty clear. He feels like this is something that needs to be confronted. And it would set off a massive fight for the 2022 primaries. The the Republican senators who are obviously not going to do anything are the ones who are up in 22. That's, you know, a bunch of these young guys, Rubio, you know, Tim Scott. Tim Scott, I would I will say, has been a particularly sort of disappointing case in this trial. I mean, I understand he's in South Carolina, but he has he has spoken up in the past and, um, you know, he's clearly just locked in on getting reelected. Uh, and when you look at the stakes, as Kim mentioned, if there are not consequences for this, there is no disincentive for it to happen again. These are really high stakes. And so for senators to be thinking about their reelection, I understand the logic in their minds, which is if I lose, then, you know, if I'm Marco Rubio and I vote to impeach Trump, then Matt Gates is the next senator from Florida. And that's worse for the country. I understand that logic, but I, I have to say it's time to cut bait. Well, John, can I ask, why isn't there safety in numbers at some point, right? Sort of like Nixon era. I mean, if Mitch McConnell is in the wings, why couldn't they sort of come together and make make the, you know, the fringe, the fringe and not the fringe, the majority and the sort of thoughtful people, the sort of old school Republicans, the fringe, and then just vote en masse, kind of like all or nothing type thing. It's a great question. It gets to the whole point. It gets to the origin of the problem from 2015 and 2016, which is that collective action is now incredibly hard. A lot of, I think the the fear here is that no one wants to get exposed for going first or being out there, out the door. And in the age of the internet and social media, it's really hard to keep a plot or a plan secret. So like anybody who has even a conversation with a colleague about this is worried they're going to go talk about it to a reporter and it's going to leak. And then they're going to be out there exposed 
and by themselves. I would give the following scenario about a 5% chance. But if it were to happen that they did engage in some collective action, it would have to be probably at Mitch McConnell's uh, behest and with his leadership. There is a scenario in which the vote on constitutionality where McConnell voted against that is a feint, a play to give themselves a little bit of time and a little bit of cover to, you know, get ready for the (laughs) total eruption that will happen if they vote for conviction. I don't have any inside information to suggest that's the case. I am reading tea leaves to suggest there is some openness on the part of McConnell to think that he might vote for this. I want to ask you about McConnell because you've been a McConnell watcher for a long time. Uh, you you know his people well. And I, I want to try to understand his calculation here because what a lot of people say about him is that McConnell at the end of the day is about amassing power, maintaining power, and judges. <laughs> That's about it. So – I guess for him, there may be a a short-term calculation and a long-term calculation. If he were to vote to convict and, and others follow him, maybe that ends up being damaging to you know, a Marco Rubio and, and others who are up for re-election, and maybe there's a danger of losing the Senate. Obviously, it's 50-50, so, so it's going to be close no matter what. On the other hand, our understanding is from other reporting, from the New York Times story, you know, he may have a desire to purge Trumpism from the Republican Party, and you kind of have this battle at some point, and this may be the best time to do it. It's a kind of a short-term versus a longer-term calculation for McConnell. How do you see how McConnell would be thinking about um, this choice at this particular moment? Or am I being too cynical about this, and is it about principle? No, I don't think you can ever be too cynical when it comes to Mitch McConnell. (laughs) But I do think that the short term for him is the 2022 midterms, you know? And so I think, yes, he has made a judgment that Trumpism as happened in the Georgia Senate special elections where they lost both seats uh, does not pay dividends and and will not work out for the party in 22 or long-term. But I also do just have the sense that, there is some level of principle that has turned on in his brain above just pure partisanship. Because I think if you look at the words in his speech on January 6th, (laughs) moments before the mob breached the Capitol, that's not a speech about power. And it's not a speech about political partisan advantage. He is saying that what Trump is doing is going to destroy the country. And I think that's an indication that he has finally woken up to what's going on here. Yeah, And let's not forget, as we were reminded today, that his wife resigned in protest after January 6th. So what about a secret ballot, John? Do we know? Because I get asked that a lot. I mean, like, like a Liz Cheney censure slash why can't I mean, there's, why wouldn't the Senate vote a rule that would allow the conviction to be by secret ballot to cover for some of these people? I don't know Senate procedure well enough. I had not thought about voting a rule for that. So I will ask about that. Uh, Politically, it's a non-starter. Every one of these senators is going to be asked to account for what there's the answer they're going to go back home and they got to go back to their districts or states and they're going to be you know hounded right. how did where did you come down they could always lie 
They yeah, do it on that's the last everything else. You mentioned on top of the five or six that have voted for constitutionality, McConnell and Thune. So, you know, at six plus two is eight. You need 17. Yeah. So you'd need nine more. What other Republicans might conceivably vote to convict? I'd be shocked if they got to 17. Shocked. Right. But, you know, I think you have to look at the older senators, the ones who are retiring. Grassley, I think most people expect to retire. Shelby is retiring. The old guard senators. Um, I'm struggling to think of the other ones. Moran, I think, maybe. Um, I think Todd Young is another one who's clearly a principled guy, but he's also younger and has a future. Danes just got elected, and he said Yeah, I don't know enough about Danes. He's never struck me as a particularly, like, take the hill kind of guy. But um You know, I would just I would just look towards the senators who are older and, and more established and retiring. The fate of the republic rests on Charles Grassley <laughs> <laughs> and and Richard Shelby, another one that uh, has been around forever. Anyway, are you done, Mike, talking about politics because I want to get back to the law because you know, we're we have a law professor. Some on. of us are legal nerds on this show. Kim, give us a preview of what you think the Trump defense is going to be tomorrow. We we understand they're only taking a day and we don't even know if they'll take all – we don't think they're going to take all 16 hours of that day. It's just been reported that it's going to be three to four hours. Okay. There we go. So I think, as I said earlier, I think on the facts, the story is going to be – he used the word peaceful, like he's very good at doing to give himself cover. By, by um, the way, can I just interrupt you on that one second? Yeah. Because uh, I think, was it you, Ward, who tweeted that at the January 6th uh, speech, he used the word peaceful once, but he used the word fight or fighting 20 times. Yeah, one of the managers mentioned that. It's not a game of relativism, right? It's a game of absolutes. If there's something in there uh, that covers him, so that's what we'll hear as a as as a factual matter. I think on the law, we'll hear these really silly, frivolous First Amendment arguments, this due process argument, completely frivolous, and they will uh, revisit the unconstitutionality because we're already hearing from some senators that listen. I'm not listening to the to the evidence because the original vote to hold this trial was completely unconstitutional. If anything's like um, the opening defense remarks, it's going. <laughs> I was going to say, gonna well, be are, we, a are, we, are we and a confuser? If we have to listen to Bruce Castor again, are we going to see my cousin <laughs> Vinny tomorrow? I mean, Bruce Castor. <laughs> no, I, I tell you, like you know, so I teach law. I my first year law students in a in a civil procedure class after that said, "Is that how it's supposed to go? What you, is that a normal lawyer?" And so they understood. You have to at least have a theory. You have to have a, a, a and even on bad facts, but they can't argue burden of proof, right? Maybe they'll argue intent. They're they're going to focus on this was just Donald Trump being Donald Trump, which has done very very well for Donald Trump for many years. Um, and and as I said. The First Amendment argument falls apart because uh, I think Jamie Raskin did a great job talking about, you know, shouting fire in a crowded theater. You know, again, if this is a personnel action, um, any federal employee, if you say something that's not appropriate in the capacity as a federal employee, you can be fired. And the First Amendment doesn't protect you. The irony, it was really if anybody had a First Amendment claim, it would have been Liz Cheney who, and the censure effort, because she really was functioning as a a legislator, a politician speaking her truth about the president, and then her caucus tried to censure her. That was the stronger First Amendment argument. So one of my questions is sort of like, for Mitch McConnell, what's left 
of kind of the base there. We have Proud Boys that are really angry. We have the the Blue Lives Matter. I mean, totally abandoning the police. I'm not hearing the support for these people. So is it going to be the MTG uh, caucus to carry the Republican Party into the future? It's certainly not the the party of fiscal conservatism anymore. I, I mean, I I think Mitch McConnell has to be thinking about that. And so it, I'm very interested in and hopeful at John's comments that maybe the maybe the older folks, the blue hairs, will go along um, with this process. But um, legally, that's what we'll hear, and we'll hear a lot of a lot of you know, if you can't pound the facts, you can't pound the law, you pound the table. We hear a lot of outrage, mm-hmm. um, yeah. disgust, and 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 John, what happens next? So so you get the the defense case tomorrow, and then this all of the senators get to ask questions, right? Yeah, on Saturday. I think if they only use one day, then Saturday would be questions. There's four hours for that. Um, I think it's basically equally divided. They go back and forth. And then in the rules, after the questions from the senators, which is four hours, um, I believe there's two hours set aside for debate on subpoenaing uh, documents and witnesses. Why would they debate subpoenaing witnesses now? If Well, it's just set there in case they decide to pursue it. Well, the question is whether anybody will the Democrats even move for that. I'm not right. sure they are. Um, yeah, right now the indication is that they're not. Yeah, right. and yeah, then and Sunday, certainly. I the only question is whether they would do closing arguments, which I think is another four hours Saturday late or Sunday like at twelve, and then the final vote looks like it'll be Saturday or Sunday. Well, four hours of closing arguments, so there is a good chance we could hear from Bruce Castor again, which gives me the motivation to want to listen to the rest of this trial because nothing could be more fun. Showing is not showing is out of commission starting at five something. Oh five. yeah, that's right. He's got and the Sabbath. Of, He's Orthodox. Sabbath. He's asked to, so so it's going to be left and so to Castor to do the close. Saturday the, cu- the question and answer session, I believe, will be all Bruce Castor, oh, which wow. on Tuesday prompted a number of Republican senators in the chamber to appear as if they were gazing across a very hazy desert plain, trying to discern <laughs> what in the distance was <laughs> appearing before them. All right. Well, all gives us some great image, a great image to close the podcast on. Gives and all gives us something to look forward to. Uh, Kim and John, thanks again, and uh, we will uh, be back to both of you as all this proceeds. Thanks for having me. Thanks, guys. Sure enough.